Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to another week of Formula for Success. I'm David Colthard. And I'm Eddie Jordan. Right, EJ, it's always a pleasure to see you. I said through slightly clenched teeth. Yes, No, I actually, know. You, you know, we've been spending a lot of time together recently and you're like a brother from another mother, aren't you? You know, I really feel... I'm not sure I could ever see you as being my son. Well, that's because... why I called you a brother. Ah, okay, brothers. Yeah, brothers vary, don't they? They can have soft ones and hard ones and medium ones. Yeah. Where do you think you fit into that? I would just be the, you know, the quiet achiever, more of a diplomat. You would be the sort of, your nickname would be Grenade. You oh. go into a room, somebody pulls a pin, and you're like a Tasmanian devil. <laughs> oh, I've never come across one of those. What is that? Watch some more cartoons. Oh, okay. you, and you'll see Tasmanian. what the ta- Tasmanian devil. You've oh, never seen okay. the, you've heard of Tom and Jerry, you've seen yes. the Roadrunner. Sure. The Tasmanian Devil is the one that goes... Rah, rah, and okay. it goes spinning around I'll like a, a hurricane. i see what relation, what you think of me, and maybe he might become a better character than I thought he was. Yeah, no, he's, he's excellent. He's one oh, of, the, he's one of okay. Disney's high achievers, I'm sure. Right, let's get straight into it. We're going to be answering some more listeners' questions this week. But first, we always love one of your celebrity tales. Well, Jordan at the time, we never went the normal route for sponsors and, you know, big marketing departments and sending out presentations and this. But this was on one occasion where we did send a presentation out because we had heard through the grapevine that, that the great company MasterCard were looking to do something in a, a full international sport. We thought maybe it would be football and golf because they'd already had their, their foot in the water there. Uh, and I remember I gave this to um, uh, Mark Gallagher who ran the commercial department for Jordan at the time, uh, fellow Irishman. Yeah, great man. And, I've worked um, with him since worked before. Before. Yeah, before. Okay, well, Mark is very well known. And uh, he presented this thing, told me what he was doing, showed me the presentation. I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm not sure how we can make it any better. And he sent it, but we got uh, knocked back. We got a no. And eventually, a couple of weeks, months later, it was announced that they had decided to go with Lola. And uh, Look what happened for us and not for them. Um, they had financial difficulties and they never went to, they never quite made it to Brazil. And before a girl called Maeve Heffler, we had already reached out to her to say that, look, in the event if everything uh, was to go pear shaped for you with Lola, we would always be on hand and just let us know that we would look after your guests on the day. 
And as it happened, it was Brazil. Um, Rubens Barrichello was there, so it made a big connection. And we looked after the guests. I went and saw them in the hospitality and paddock club, and that was fine. And I said, look, the condition here is uh, we don't want any money for this. However, we do want the ability to go and speak to your head people about uh, transferring that sponsorship because now the Lola deal is kaput because, as you know, with Bernie and that, if you miss a race, you miss everything. You're no longer part of the group. Uh, it's a very tough rule, but it actually is good because it keeps everybody together. Um, I got the answer back on the Saturday afternoon to say, yes, that they would see me in Purchase, New York, uh, in the head office of MasterCard. And we were pretty impressed with this, uh, but I had a race to do. And um, Mark was preparing everything and how we would present it. So we jumped on this plane. Uh, to New York, um, little did we know that there was quite a few Jordan fans on the plane, all Paddies, um, working in bars and pubs and people who own bars and pubs in New York. Um, so they wouldn't let us get off, but we arrived in this most amazing s snowstorm and um, couldn't get a cab. Um, so we were whisked into this bus with these other Irish absolute head cases um you on a bus of course i love buses because i now i'm 75 i can get buses for free anyway back to the story the story goes we went to the pub uh they opened up 7 a.m in the morning and i've never had pints at that hour in my life before except on the way home what? but that's the best time it's absolutely brilliant it's like nectar isn't it it yeah. just is creamy magic and uh, after a couple of these i was saying to myself god i'm if i'm going to present to these people later on in the day i, I really need to see the bed uh, at some stage so um fitzpatrick's been the real irish uh, hotel in new york we we kept down there for a couple of hours and mark grabbed me and he said right we're out to purchase new york and the ceo a guy called Bill Jacobs. Bill Jacobs was there, which I was super impressed with, that they'd actually gone to this level to get the people there. Uh, and I was in top form. I was buzzing. I just had the pints. I was you were sort of, I was still... I was half anyway pissed. <laughs> so it just... It rambled out so easy, David. It's just a scenario that never changes. Anyway, he was kind of confused because I think I put more words into a sentence than anyone else. And he kind of said, Jesus, I better sponsor this guy because I can't shut him up. Anyway, they became the most incredible sponsors uh, for four or five years with Jordan. Uh, I attended a lot of their functions when they, they sponsored the, the seniors tour in, uh, in golf. But probably the most remarkable thing was um, they hooked me up uh, with Pele, that genius of a person. And he was such a charitable man. And uh, we did a lot in favelas in, in, in Brazil uh, and throughout the world. He, he was a magic guy and he was an ambassador for MasterCard. And then they appointed me a similar MasterCard. So uh, what a great story yeah, he was. They were uh, great. Well, can I just, it brings, well, it's in my mind, what a genius he was, not only on the football field. And great to hear he, he was obviously recognising uh, those less fortunate through ah, the work he did with the fellas. But one of the best marketing campaigns I think I've ever seen was he was a brand ambassador for Pfizer. And you know which one of their products he was promoting? Exactly. He was promoting, I think, one the one you get an extra extension, no, isn't it? The yeah, the erection? Viagra. The Viagra, uh, You yes. know more so, about this. No, yeah, well, I, we, I've let, given up all of those. I, I, <laughs> we don't need to know about uh, the, <laughs> no, the no. perks of, 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 the, of being 75. Um, but the, the whole thing I was going to mention there is he, he would promote it on the basis that the quote was, if I needed help, 
I would turn to Pfizer and Viagra. So he was not acknowledging that he'd ever used the product or that he he might in in the short term, but some point in the future, if he did, that would be his chosen uh, chosen product. And I thought, God, does that show the, the power of the man that they would allow him to endorse a product that he's saying he doesn't use? Well... Isn't it absolutely remarkable? While you were talking there, I'm trying to recall with as much accuracy as I can get a very (laughs) similar story because um, this group, um, uh, pharmaceutical people said, um, they must have thought I was a bit weary at this stage, said they offered me something similar. And with four relatively young kids still at school at the time, I thought, "Mm, um, you know, it might be a bit too close to the bone and the kids might not realise, you know, this is a half a million quid they were offering me. And I thought, this is a lot of money to say that I take this particular drug. But they made me do a test. Medication, I think. Uh, But they made me do a test. And I don't know if they did with Pele. But (laughs) they made me do a test and they said, "Mm, actually, we can't really say what we'd like to say because (laughs) it doesn't apply to you. So I was very pleased about that. (laughs) However, there was somebody who was going through a little bit of difficulty at the time and, and, and... we had become great friends. Uh, and that was none other than Sterling Moss. And I said, Sterling, do you want to have a crack at this deal? This is the situation. So about three months later, Marie, my wife, and I were running, going into town, having living in Oxford at the time, and we are coming in at the M4 on both sides. You know those two massive big signposts on both sides of the thing? Yeah. And you could see a face uh, as like a knight on a horse. And it was clearly Sterling Moss's face. And... The caption was, Arise, Sir Sterling. <laughs> and that was him. And then the drug underneath. So it actually corresponds to exactly what happened with Pele. And I wasn't really sure that Pele had done that. Now that I recall, of course, it yeah. was him. Oh, well, you, you so mentioned... Sterling and Pele together, two absolute legends. That is, that is absolutely fantastic. And what, what a legend, what a legend uh, Sir Sterling was. I, I was, uh, like I'm sure many in, who'd had the opportunity to meet him, he was, you know, he was so much more than just a racing driver, wasn't he? He was such a personality. You know, because my wife is a full-blown photographer now, there are certain pictures and stuff, all of the great actors and actresses and, and uh, Marlon Monroe and stuff, that picture, it's stuck in your head, isn't it? About, but there's one with, with Sterling, and it was Sterling after having done a race in Goodwood, and he had taken the goggles off, so the whole face was nearly blackened out, uh, except for where the goggles had been. Yeah. And, and it's a black and white shot, and in one hand he has one of the original Coke-shaped bottles of Coke. Yeah. And I just often think Coke really missed a beat there because for me, that is one of the classic shots. Oh, it um, is. They could have been huge. If, you know, if, who knows, who's a it was really, a, it's who a great picture. Anyone anymore? who has time to look in a computer, go and have a look at what the picture I'm talking about because it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I can see that picture. It was just, basically, back in those days, the cars were leaking oil from everywhere, you know, leaking from inside the cockpit, they were leaking from the gearbox, leaking from the engine. You're probably leaking, David. Uh, well, Did you ever have to leak in the car, by the way? I never only asked once, you Only once in Canada. We had a safety car very early, which I think was when Panis broke his leg. In Canada, you could get some really warm June days in, in Canada. And I drank five or six litres um, before the race. And normally you get going and, and, and you're you dehydrating. You, well, you forget about it. And also you dehydrate so quickly, you you know, it kind of evaporates inside the body, I guess. But on this particular occasion, um, I couldn't hold it any longer. But some some drivers like Jacques Villeneuve, I think Nelson Piquet, they, they used to pee as a matter of course on the grid. 
they would just be sitting there and they'd just stay in the car and they'd pee. And of course, you know, you'd have mechanics bending down when they didn't know, putting their finger in the fluid to try and see if it's, you know, viscous, if it, is it oil, is it I think we've had enough of that water. story. Yeah. <laughs> move on. Move on. Well, should we move on to listeners' questions? Are you up oh, for some? I'm up for everything. So we do have some listeners' questions, and uh, we're going to start with one from Laura. And she wants to know, who is the funniest person you've come across in Formula One, and who is the funniest celebrity you've met? Now, um, you're definitely one of the funniest people I know in Formula One. Really? Yeah. And you're a bit of a celeb, so I'm going to roll that answer into both you, but you're going to have a bit more imagination in this. So funniest person, Eddie Irvine, he was quite funny. Uh, uh, no, but he, he 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 was deranged, wasn't he? I mean, <laughs> okay, you couldn't call enough. him a normal person. <laughs> but there was a situation in Japan when he did his first ever Grand Prix that um, after the race, uh, I think you find Senna won the world championship there uh, and Carl Hines, who ran the motorhome for Bernie and most people congregated around this thing. Carl Hines was, did the hospitality, but he was a great man for his snaps. And Gerhard Berger, being a fellow Austrian, uh, was just not of this planet in terms of uh, mindset. He was just completely crazy. And uh, immediately after the race, he'd be setting into shots of this snaps. And because he'd won the world championship, he got Ayrton on it. And they were teammates of McLaren, I think, at the time. And um, Gerhard, just looking for aggravation, which is second nature to him, um, he kept saying to Ayrton, you, you, you need to go down and see that Irvine fucker is only his first ever Grand Prix. And he, 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 he dared to outlap himself or unlap himself. And he passed you for sixth place in his first ever Grand Prix. I wouldn't be putting up with that. You need to go and teach him a lesson. So this is Gerhard pushing him. Next thing is, Ayrton comes down into the Jordan garage and he started talking to Irvine, and Irvine totally ignores him, knows exactly who he is. He's doing an interview with someone and was not prepared to be uh, disturbed. And the guy, you know, Ayrton was getting ratty about this guy. Does he not realise who I am sort of thing? And he just lashed out and gave him a smack. It was the biggest publicity <laughs> Irvine ever got in his life was to get punched in the Japanese Grand Prix, in his first ever Grand Prix, by Ayrton Senna. I, I remember him, it was uh, coming through... Uh, one thirty, one thirty. No, the kink, and then into one thirty R. He overtook Ayrton before the chicane, and in the uh, wet, in the wet. And Suzuka in Japan generally, Eddie raced Formula three thousand there as yeah. a number of drivers did, and you had probably I don't know how many drivers that you were managing out in that part of the world. It was well, a very lucrative. I was just removing some of their all earned money, and yeah. just uh, because I had the management skills to be able to look after them. You yeah. see, yeah, and I'm sure you did very well. But it was a, a very good financial place to be if you weren't in Formula 1 and Suzuka's a tricky track and in the wet you really need to know where the lines are so yeah Eddie credit where it's due was was brilliant on his debut we've got another question here from Big Mark Williams 666 there you go um, and he goes hello lads can you please ask Eddie if he thinks Red Bull's penalty for breaching the financial rules was too lenient giving the performance advantage that they clearly have now he then goes on to say, DC, you being a former uh, driver for Red Bull are biased, but I would love to hear Eddie's opinion. Well, actually, before you answer, um, Big Mark Williams 666, I don't, I'm not biased, I'm factual. So, you know, bias is where you, you, you overlook the facts to give an answer which supports your beliefs. I think that uh, they got what the FIA felt was the appropriate penalty for whatever the, the, the financial breach was. And like any referee... 
you've got to accept the referee's decision. If they felt there was uh, there was a, a, a basis to appeal that penalty, they would have done so. You know that. You don't accept a penalty if you think that's unjust. You you know you only accept it if you think, well, look, it's probably about where it needs to be. So um, anyway, I think they got a penalty and they, they, they clearly in that case deserved it for, for breaching. EJ, over to you. Well, and don't be biased now. Uh, I did love your assessment of being biased there for a moment, David. I don't think there's a person on this planet who could represent so many different companies all at the same time and you still draw money and good money from each and every one of them. Is that not being biased? No, it's called working for a living. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, you that's know, your opinion. You've right, kissed, now, kissed the Blarney Stone and... and, and, and <laughs> that's, my, that's my source of income. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't kiss the Blarney Stone. I swallowed it. <laughs> <laughs> that actually does make, that does make sense. Anyway. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, we're back to... Funny enough, your great pal, who was probably and still is beyond any doubt, in my opinion, no one in this world has ever come close to being as great a neurodynamicist or a designer, uh, is Adrian Newey. And I think if you look back at what's been achieved with, with Vettel or uh, with, with Senna himself, and you met him, of course, when you were at Williams, um, but what he's doing at Red Bull is just simply phenomenal. And um, I'm out cycling with him. We're preparing to do the Argus. He's a great cyclist, believe it or not. And it's one of his big passions. And we're in Cape Town at the time. And this thing comes up about the penalty. And I said, come on, Adrian, level with me. And he, he was reluctant to accept it, but he, he had to because they'd been tipped off that prepare themselves for a 20% reduction in the aero. He didn't care about the penalty with the money. He didn't care about anything else, as engineers will tell you. And an engineer will bankrupt a team if they get half a chance. So you never let them have access to any money or any decision-making about financial matters. Please always remember that out there, folks. They're just natural spenders. Um, we're trying to curtail them. Nevertheless, uh, Adrian is a pragmatic, sensible man. Uh, with a brilliant insight into car building and where he's going. And um, when the 10% thing, he, 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 he mentally he didn't like it because he felt that the restriction on him as to what he would be able to do with a new car, but he was lucky and Red Bull were lucky because it's an evolution. It wasn't a brand new design. So had it been a brand new design, I think that 10% would have actually eaten into the performance of the car. So do I think it was too tough? I think they were quite lucky that the penalty was when it was. Uh, and I think 10% is a, a big margin. Now, I've said that. Mark, I just need to say this to you. Um, where Red Bull don't have an opportunity, 
And I think um, some people which have big manufacturers behind them, I'm talking about Ferrari, I'm talking about Mercedes, I'm talking about Aston Martin, so I'm talking about anyone that has an affiliation or an ownership with a, a manufacturer. In my opinion, there has to be a system where it's easier to flaunt the rules and regulations because you know the aerodynamic side of that uh, car manufacturer can do certain things now i'm not saying that's what they do i'm not saying that but i'm saying if it was me i'd make sure that that's what would happen so to be able to circumvent the rules i think it's a matter of uh, integrity and i think that generally most teams or all of the teams have good credibility and uh, and integrity and i think red bull are one of the people that um, stand up for that and yeah. I, I like them for that yeah i think that formula one is so heavily regulated with with so many major manufacturers involved that the cost of deliberately doing something outside the the spirit of the rules knowing that it, it's you know, well outside the spirit, I think is is unlikely in this in this modern time. I do think it's part of the creative process to read the regulations to see what it says, because crucially, what it doesn't say is where your opportunity lies. Absolutely. And the designers, by the, the tools they have and the the minds they have, are usually a couple of steps ahead of the regulators uh, in terms of you know be able to create those those new bits of technology that people go like, you know, double diffusers and the DRS that used to operate when you stalled the rear wing from within the cockpit rather than the modern overtaking device like we have today. And I love all that part of the ingenuity of the of the engineers. Um, you know, they, they literally look at the rules and everything it doesn't say is where they start getting busy with the design. It's the first thing that any sensible, uh, high-quality engineer um, I remember, for me, Gary Anderson, who was with Jordan, was a past master. He, he, you couldn't talk to him for the first couple of days that the new regulations came out because he would have um, yellow highlights, this and that. And it's all about the unfair advantage. If it's not cheating and it's not prohibited for law and there's a way around it, take it because everyone else will be doing the same or trying to find a way around it and it's really clever ones who are able to find that unfair advantage yes indeed right we've got another one here from alan crooks and it's very simple asking uh, who's been the biggest inspiration on on our respective careers um and part of the key to being where we are today look this may seem a little bit if i go ej a little bit sort of predictable but my parents you know they gave me opportunity they gave me work ethic they encouraged me to get out the door and and leave home. I think you you see, you know, a lot of families, they're kind of scared of their kids moving on for losing out on something. But I was certainly brought up in a household where we were expected to get out and about and, and make good uh, for ourselves. So without their support, I would not have been on this journey. Um, what about yourself? You probably got kicked out of Borstal, <laughs> did you? <laughs> I wasn't clever enough to go to Borstal, but um, that's another story. But it's funny. I think every Irish boy gravitates to their mother. But, you know, when I went to England first, she was so upset because she was an absolute Republican, number one, because her father was shot in front of all the children, 13 children, was shot in front of them by the black and tans. But we don't need to bring that up. But it's, nevertheless, it's a fact of life. And um, so my mother felt that Ireland is one country and should always be one country. So when I went to England, she, she didn't see England as being the opposition, but she thought it was, you know, but I was had to go there to pursue what I wanted to do as a racing driver. So she thought I was starving. So she used to send me monthly food baskets to kind of survive, particularly poor Marie. When she married me, Jesus, she was 18 or 19 
I can't tell you what my mother thought I was completely deranged, but she always... She was a good judge of character, your mother. She always sent me enough money that I wasn't allowed to touch was the return fare on the ferry, on the boat back to Dunleary and uh, from Hollyhead. Um, thankfully, I haven't had to delve into that little kitty yet, but um, you're absolutely right. I think most people, um, we'd like to say, you know, Bernie was an inspiration. This guy was an inspiration. Nicky Lauda was hugely important for me to go into I wouldn't have been in running a team had it not been for Nicky um, he gave me the inspiration to go on so he'd be one uh, but my mother you know overshadows the whole lot because uh, as we say in Irish uh, it's a thing women of Ireland they are so strong and you will find any inspired Irish person very often gets that drive, that commitment and the passion to be successful and to be proud of not just themselves, but their parents and their family uh, and the people of Ireland. And I think that comes from the mother. Well, well said, EJ. Just move it along. We've got Tony here uh, who would like to know uh, who our favourite of the young drivers that have recently come into Formula One is and which one of them we think can realistically challenge Max. Well, if I if I run with it, I think Formula One's in a great place right now with a number of, of young guys. They're all sort of mid-twenties, aren't they? You've got your Landers and Georges and and, and uh, Charles's and Max's and whoever else I'm, I'm missing out of that group right now. And then at the other end, of course, you've got uh, Fernando and, and Lewis as the, the elder statesman. But we have a generation of drivers in their mid-twenties that, you know, for the next decade are going to be Sure, trying to fight it out. And basically any one of those guys, and, and some I didn't mention, who get their hands on a race-winning car have a chance to challenge Max. Challenging Max in the same team is going to take somebody... A mighty job. Yeah, a mighty effort, a superhuman effort, because Max is just... Light you know, years ahead. He's, he's just... He's a machine, isn't he? He's, he's being groomed in, in the... The, the nicest way of that, that expression in terms of you know being on racetrack from an early age, both parents have been racers and he's assertive, strong-willed and more than capable. Um, do you see anyone that could jump in Checo's car and leave Max thinking, which way did he go? I've gone through this on a number of occasions and I actually think, you know, Daniel Ricciardo is there, but there's no way Daniel is going to do the job that Checo's doing. In my opinion, having seen what what Daniel has done, uh, as much as we like the guy, he's just a fabulous person to be around, but Checo is doing a magic job. I think everything you said there, I, I concur with it. And we go back to the old story that we're talking about mothers. I mean, let's be honest, Jos Verstappen drove uh, a Jordan car. And um, then he went to Benetton and nearly got himself fried when that car went up in flames. But, you know, I think as Max goes back, I think we've had enough dinners with him and lunches and a few beers and stuff to realise that I think he sees the performance of his mother, the speed of his mother, how she went about her business. I think if you were actually to sit down, Max, he's naturally going to say he got the inspiration from both. But I, I can still see the following on that it was the mum was so Sophie. unusual yeah. I mean, she was she was a great talent in karting um, for people so when you've got such a great talent in karting and seeing what happens and then you have the father who's a Grand Prix driver and understands the pitfalls that happens and then you have somebody as quick naturally as Max for me 
I really do believe in time he will turn out to be the greatest driver of all time, subject to, fingers crossed, that he will be uh, safe and well for a very long time because he has such a phenomenal attitude in the car. He's aggressive when he needs to be aggressive. He's tough when he needs to be tough. But, you know, he, he's clever as well. He knows how to look after the car. Another thing in his favour, he has to hope particularly after the death of Didi Matisic of Red Bull, that that team stays as strong as it is. And with the people like Christian there and, and Adrian Newey there, I see no real problem in the short term. And I see Max going from strength to strength. And I would not like to be a driver in Formula One at the moment, hoping to become a world champion because I don't know where it's going to come from. Having said that, I think I must answer your question. And that is, I have a lot of time. I, I, I got it wrong with, with George. I got it wrong. I saw him in the Williams and I saw, are they really going to sign him? Is that really what's going to happen? He absolutely blew me away. He did. And uh, full marks, hands up. I got that wrong. I never thought he would do what he's doing. And I never thought that um, he would be beating Lewis. My only concern is that Lewis has to find something else in his mojo now and he needs to get out of there. He needs to move on, just like he did when he was with McLaren. Get out of Mercedes, Lewis. It's time you've reinvented yourself somewhere else. Well, um, I've just put a little little mark in my diary. Uh, I think this is the first time you've ever admitted to being wrong. No, I, I'm David, speechless. how dare you? How dare you? Well, when was the other time you admitted to being wrong? Well, um, I, I, no, there's been occasions <laughs> where I've been right, and not to sign you was obviously one of the great moments of my life to avoid you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's in that's in a racing career. But uh, we've all moved on from there. But it's interesting, isn't it, to see the uh, Nando? I love what he does. I love what George does. There's so many great young drivers great coming. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, they're brilliant, and they're good communicators as well. Which means, no, but they're good guys. Yeah, good guys. Yeah, all credit to that generation. Right, another quick one here, EJ. Um, there's a gentleman here from uh, Alex is his name, and he has gone uh, results aside. Which one of your cars was a personal favourite of yours, the Jordan Grand Prix cars? He says he particularly loved the 197 and he wants to know how the snake got added. Was that to do with Benton and Hedges? You did Bitten and Hesses, I think, was the branding. There's a little story about this because it was Bitten and Hesses, which was came from uh, Benton and Hedges, uh, came from um, Saatchi's, who handled the advertising figure. But it was my daughter, Zoe, when she was starting a university up in uh, Newcastle doing architecture. Um, if you look at Benson and Hedges and you scrub out certain words, two letters here and two letters there, it turns out B on edge. And we put B on edge on the car for a while. And I thought that was super clever. I mean, they even paid Zoe a small amount of money just for the creating of that particular caption. And it was magic. Bitten and Hisses was, I think we've already talked about Johnny Lydon painting his hair the same colour. And it was as a result of the snake, because he wanted to depict, you know, the snarling effect of the snake on the car. That was the 97 car or whatever one it was. But um, look, 97 was a great car. And um, only yesterday in Sank on Sank, I had a, a nice tequila with one of our old favourites, Mr. Ralph Schumacher. And... Um, he always complains to me because we should have finished first and second in Argentina. And instead of uh, winning first and second, um, uh, Yarno crashed into uh, 
into Ralph and allowed um, Villeneuve win the race. Uh, I think Ralph did go on to finish third eventually, but we were all very miffed and very upset. That 97 car was the pre-runner of what was coming because Gary, it was a brilliant car. The 98 car uh, was the Spa, was a winning car. But it was probably the 99 car when Frenzen was there. If you remember the swap, um, your friend Michael Schumacher paid me to get um, release Ralph from his contract to go to Williams. And then I took Frenzen from Williams at no cost and put him in the car, at not paying him an awful lot of money. And uh, he virtually, you know, he had a run for the championship that year. So um, those cars, the seven, 97, 98 and 99 car was our purple time. They were the sweet spot. Yeah, you know, Frenchman was one of those drivers. When he had the big chance at Williams, I think he only won one Grand Prix. But somehow when he was in, with the greatest respect, let's say what would be seen as middle grid teams, you know, a privateer team. Much teams. lesser team. Is that the word you're well, looking for? Well, you weren't a manufacturer team. You were an independent. So let's call it that. When when he That's was true. with that Sauber and when he was at Jordan, he won a few Grand Prix for you. And I think it was the Magna Cure race and I think it was transitional weather conditions, you know, yeah. brilliant as well. So yeah, one of those guys away from the, the big spotlight, he could perform unbelievably well. But when the spotlight of, you know, you should be yeah. qualifying the front row and winning he, he seemed to he somehow struggle he was totally intimidated by somebody you mentioned earlier that's Patrick Head and Patrick Head didn't suffer people fools easily did he I well mean, he put up with me for two years well yeah but you have obviously a knack of being able to circumvent all of those manoeuvres but Patrick was a tough guy yeah. and funny enough I see Patrick quite regularly at uh, the, the Chelsea home games uh, he's a bit of a fan um, but pa- Patrick was tough like real hard real real hard and I think, poor Frenzen, uh, Heinz Harald wasn't able to handle that. And Heinz Harald had been with us, with Eddie Irvine, in, at the end of the 80s in our Formula 3000 team. So we knew him. So he was coming to a family kind of a team that back he'd home. already been with yeah. back home. I think that is now a good opportunity for us to wrap this particular show off. Um, thank you as always for your questions. You can keep them coming and you can email us at ffs at whisper.tv. Is there anything you want to say to the listeners well, before we go? I just want go? to thank the listeners because um, the music has gone down uh, yeah. reasonably well and uh, we're happy about that. And we're in this lovely studio and we were talking about the, the guys here seeing how we lay that one on top of the other. These guys know how. Look, this studio in Monaco, you know, this is where they recorded. Smoke on the water. Really? No, it's not. I just thought I'd embellish the way that you normally do. Now, you're going to tell me. Is that too much? You tell me the name of the band. You tell me all the members of... First of all, who who was the sign? Smoke on the water. Oh, jeez, oh, I can't on. remember. It was, uh, dun, dun, dun. I remember the song. Dun, I can't remember dun, dun, dun. the band. I'm not a musician. And I don't even play the spoons. But one of the greatest left-handed drummers was uh, in, oh, in, 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 in pace, in pace. It was, I know it was, it was recorded in Geneva, on the, the banks of Lake Geneva, because it was the morning mist that inspired the smoke on the water, I believe. But um, okay. anyway, shall we wrap it up? You've been listening and reading too many comic books. Uh, oh, actually, talking of which, you know, I, um, I told you, you looked a little bit and acted a bit like the Tasmanian devil. I've sent you a picture on your on your phone. Ah, that, I can see. And, and so I our can... listeners can't see this, but they all know. And I, I'll send you a little link to one of the cartoons. And when you see it, you'll be on to Disney going, that's my copyright. That's me. You've turned into a cartoon. <laughs> Thank you, David. I think you're going to close the show here before we get into fisticuffs. Absolutely. Well, look, that's all from me, David Coulthard, and from the Tasmanian Devil. Arr!
Eddie Jordan saying goodbye. Keep well, everybody. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of Real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.